holy moly, this person isn't the person that I thought he was. And we obviously tried counselling and we tried, um, you know, getting some help, but it just got to a point where he would do anything to hide his addiction. And ultimately it cost him his family because we were no longer safe to be there. Welcome to today's podcast episode. It's a conversation with one of our listeners, actually. So this is someone who reached out to us and was really vulnerable in sharing her story and willing to come onto the podcast and have a really open conversation with the intention of letting other listeners know, letting other women know that if they're in a difficult situation, and in this case, it's a dangerous situation, that they can and I I don't say this lightly because it is not easy. The statistics tell us, the information we have tells us it is not easy for a woman to leave a dangerous relationship at all. And today's conversation, the intention behind it is to share one woman's story of doing that, of actually being able to leave and to rebuild her life. So today's guest, her name is Amy. And from the outside looking in, Amy had what she described as the picture-perfect marriage that people who followed her on Instagram would have assumed her life was picturesque and just going along beautifully. But behind closed doors, it was a completely different story for her and her children. During our conversation, we do touch on domestic violence. We speak about alcoholism, addiction, We talk about coercive control. We talk about really, really hard stuff. And Amy is so vulnerable and so open and just really generous, I think, in sharing her experience. So today's episode is likely not suitable for some listeners, particularly if you are planning on playing an episode while your children are around. This isn't the right episode for that. If you yourself are like quite triggered and find topics of domestic violence distressing, then please practice your own listener discretion and look after yourself. It's okay. Like it is so okay to skip an episode if it's a topic that's going to cause you upset. I do think that this conversation is going to be really valuable for listeners out there because Amy shares just so openly in how how low and how hard things got and how she was able to get herself back on top and back to a place where she's really happy and she's thriving in life. And I just think the more people that can hear about that, the better. So if you do need help, if you do need some support, we've got some resources in the show notes. Absolutely use those resources and look after yourself. If you find today's episode helpful, please feel free to slide into my DMs and let me know. Jump on over to social media and leave a comment. And as always, it would mean the world to me if you share this episode with someone else. If there is a friend that comes to mind who's been in a really tricky situation, perhaps is still in a tricky, and I say tricky and that just feels trivial, a dangerous situation. And even the word toxic doesn't cover it. But if 
you know of someone that needs to hear from today's guest, just in terms of her story, please send this episode on to your friend, your family, post it on your own story. It means a lot to me. Let's get into my conversation with Amy. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Amy, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to share your story with me. Thank you, Kylie. Thank you so much for having me. Now, there's a lot for us to discuss. You've been really, really uh, open and vulnerable with us via email and sharing parts of your story. But perhaps we begin with the fact that you were married for 15 years, you had three children, and from the outside looking in, you would describe it as like the perfect relationship to the outsider. But that wasn't the case for those who were on the inside. Yeah, that's right. Um, So I was married for 15 years. We had three beautiful children together. Um, We owned our home. We had normal jobs. He had his own business. I was working full time. Um, And as you said, it looked, according to social media, like our life was very normal and very happy and fulfilling. However, um, in the very last few years of our marriage, there was so much going on behind closed doors that nobody could see other than the people that were in in the house um, with me. So um, my ex-husband had a very bad addiction and um, alcohol problem and that just, just made, sorry, it just spiraled. It spiraled, yeah. So it was something that was always evident within our marriage throughout the years. However, in the last few years, it just became catastrophic to a point where we just couldn't maintain a relationship and we just, it was unsafe to be in that situation with him. So you mentioned you were married for 15 years. Some of these behaviours, you know, the ones that became catastrophic and disastrous towards the end of your relationship, they were present in the early days or they weren't really there and they started to manifest as time went on? Yeah, um, he always has had sort of like an addiction type issue because um, him and I had been together since we were teenagers. So he was always a bit of a partier, um, but it never got to a point of violence or um, abuse back in the day. Um, and when I think of being a teenager, Amy, I think there are a lot of behaviours that are wild and out there and it's kind of part of the context of being a young person. So I can imagine for you being a teenager and going, oh, you know, there are outbursts or there's excessive drinking. It could kind of be explained away as part of that youth culture. It's so Australian as well. Um, it's just part of our culture to 
go to a barbecue and drink. Um, But the problem is when you come home and, you know, I've been at work all day and I come home and he's been drinking all day. Like that's where the problem really started and it's um, started affecting all areas of our life um, where I wasn't able to work for some periods of time because I couldn't leave my children with him. That must just be, as a parent, incredibly um, scary and confronting to think, right, I've got three children with someone who I don't trust to care for them. Yeah, it was such a scary time. However, I also, I had to like provide for the family because his alcoholism became so bad that he stopped working. He hasn't worked since for five years now, since before we separated. So I had to hold the fort and financially provide and keep the roof over our head and the food on the table. I actually went back to work when my youngest child was 10 weeks old because he rode off a car drink driving and we had to pay. It was a brand new car. It had to be paid still. So things, catastrophic events like that started to begin to happen. And it was like a nudge from the universe saying, hey, this is a big problem and you need to do something about it. But unfortunately, he didn't listen. During that time, Amy, when you were carrying the load, you're worried about the kids, you're carrying the financial load, you're obviously worried about him as well. What was it that you were telling yourself through that time? Were you kind of like looking at him through the lens of a sickness, of going, he has alcoholism, he is sick, he is unwell, I need to be the pillar. Is that what you were thinking or was it different for you? I think it was different for me because it was so hidden. Um, He So back when we were teenagers and, and growing up together, he was so honest about everything. Nothing was hidden. In the end, it all started to be hidden from me and lies and um. I would discover it by going to put some rubbish in the bin and seeing lots of bottles in the bin that I hadn't known were there. And my kids were so little then that they they didn't alert me to it and I wasn't aware of it for so long. Um, so, yeah, it just it wasn't until I think his behaviour became so absurd and so strange that it was blatantly obvious then. Of course, because if he's home through the day with small children, small children aren't going to know what a drunk person looks like or what an adult should or shouldn't really be doing because it's just their normal existence. Yeah, it was so normal for them to see him with a beer. And I went through this big clutter, you know, a few years ago of deleting all my photos of him on my phone. And I kid you not, every single photo he had a beer in his hand, like almost every single photo. It's just insane. Like, But at the time, it's just so normal. So it wasn't until these big life events started happening that it triggered me to go, holy moly, this person isn't the person that I thought he was. And we obviously tried counselling and we tried, um, you know, getting some help, but it just got to a point where he would do anything to hide his addiction and ultimately it cost him his family because we were no longer safe to be there. During the times when you were speaking with a counsellor, was he taking accountability for his sickness and were you promised change? He 
only attended maybe one or two counselling sessions with me. So we enlisted the help of a marriage counsellor and then I found myself going by myself because he had been drinking and I was just not okay about sitting in a room with him. So I would go by myself and just deal with it on my own. Um, of course, I always got the promises every single time after every event, every DV incident, um, the promise that I'm going to stop on Monday, I'm going to stop on Monday. Um, and eventually, you know, you stop believing that and you realize that that's never going to change. Yeah. You mentioned DV. So can we chat a little bit about the progression from alcoholism, trying to make it work through to those cataclysmic life events and what actually started to unfold for you? Yeah, so the DV began um, about a year before we separated. Probably 12 months to 18 months is when the first um, DV order got put in place. And it was always a very toxic argument um, where I would come home and he would be drunk and I would try to address the issue and try to, you know, obviously be very angry and upset with him. Um, and for us, for, for our particular situation, it was always me trying to leave. So I didn't want to be around him. At that point, I hated him. Um, and it was me saying, I don't want to do this with you. I'm taking the children and I'm going to stay at this person's house. And he wouldn't allow me to leave. How old were the children during that time? They were about eight, seven and 18 months old. And from everything we know, and I don't know whether you knew this at the time, but from everything I'm beginning to understand about domestic violence, when a woman decides to leave, that's the most dangerous time. Yeah. So his um, behaviour would always be around keeping me in that home. So I would have my phone taken off me. I would have my keys taken off me, um, money, all of these things. Um, we were locked in rooms. We, I remember walking the streets at night with my three children with absolutely nothing and my neighbours driving around the corner and seeing what's happening and picking me up and saying, where can I take you? Like that happened quite a few times and eventually it got to the point where my neighbours had to restrain him to let us leave and that's when the police really intervened and said, it is time for a no contact order for you guys. You cannot live like this. You should not have to leave your home. Your children need to stay at home. And this is what we suggest. And finally, after about, you know, 18 to 12 months of that cycle of toxic behavior, I made that decision and he was removed from our home. During those times when you were locked in a room, when you're walking the streets, what are you telling the kids? Like, what are your conversations with the children like at that time? They were so little at the time. I always just tried to downplay it for them and make them feel really safe and comfortable. So, you know, the time that we were in a room, it was like making it like a sleepover and trying not to upset them. Again, whenever we would leave, it was always, we're going to grandma's for a sleepover or we're doing this um, we're going to stay at this person's house for the night. Um, and I just got sick of like sleeping on people's couches and sleeping on the floor with my kids and 
like not being able to get up and access the food, you know, the fridge full of food that I just bought. Like there was just so many things that impacted my life. And that's kind of why I kept going back because I was like, like, screw this. That's my home. I want to go back and I want my children to be tucked into their own bed. Unfortunately, he just wasn't a person that was willing to to leave. At that time, Amy, did you have the language and the understanding of coercive control? I don't think, I definitely don't think I did at the time. Um, I'm such a, so much stronger now and reflecting back on it, I wish that I had have done something so much sooner and recognised all of those situations that we were in and I would have, if I probably would have made um, progress so much quicker of removing myself from that situation. But when you're in that cycle, it's really hard to, to like articulate how like, you know, the, you have these lenses on and you can't see those things. And it's just, you just go round and around and around. You've just said that you're so much stronger now. I think you're incredibly strong and you were strong back then too. And it's not your fault that you didn't recognize those coercive control signs. You know, coercive control is such a new term for us to be using and for people to really understand. And there's so much that goes into making women susceptible to coercive control, right? There's so much put on us. There's so much responsibility for us to be the keeper of the relationship and the fixer of the relationship. And there's so much disdain in society if a woman does separate from her male partner. Like there are so many elements at play that it's no wonder you can't see it when you're in it. And it's no wonder that staying in it feels like the right thing to do, right? Because we're told from such a young age, fight for your relationship or we're told to be quiet and be good and it's there's just so many things going on that I really I just hate the thought of you looking back at that time and going oh I should have done more or should have been better or should have you know done it differently because you did an incredible job to get through it yeah I think um one of my biggest things was I was so ashamed of the life that we were living, and I was so scared of failure. I'd never failed anything in my life, and my marriage was a complete failure and My parents are together, and I was modeled um you know like growing up, my parents were always working out their issues, and to me, I was like I just felt like I'd failed my family. But reflecting now and and being where I am now, I realize that the failure was the greatest like blessing of my life. Um, it's not failure at all when you remove yourself from somebody that doesn't have the same goals, values, and doesn't align with you anymore. You can't keep pushing forward with somebody that's going the opposite way. He was like an anchor, and I finally cut him off and life began again. And then the, the rebuild began. During the time when you were rebuilding, what was that like? It was definitely really hard. I remember just being in the trenches and feeling so overwhelmed. It was really, really hard. And there was a lot of tears and there was a lot of support too. Um, when bad things happen, 
you know, you get this beautiful community behind you and my parents stepped up and my work family stepped up and my friends stepped up and everyone got behind me and really supported me and helped me raise my children because I still had a mortgage to pay for and, um, you know, I still had to feed these children. I've never received a cent of child support and I don't get every second weekend off, um, you know, so I had to keep going so that I could give these children the life that they deserve. Can I ask a question and we can edit this out if it's mm. too personal? Mm-hmm. I would love to hear about your experience with the system in terms of going through a separation. You know, there's so much rhetoric out there about how, oh, the woman automatically has so many rights. The man, and of course we're talking heteronormative here, the system provides a lot of opportunity for men to access their children over and over and over and over again. What was it like dealing with the actual system side of things? And I I don't know your story. I don't know whether your ex like held his hands up and said, I want no access or whether he was fighting you the whole way. But what was that side of things like? That side was really hard because he fought like tooth and nail to have those children in his life. Um, and the system absolutely gives them every opportunity to see their kids. So even though we had a no contact order in place, we he was allowed contact with my written permission. So once we had separated, the kids did still continue to see him. However, they were now in a situation where I wasn't actually there. So they're going to wherever he is and they don't have me there to protect them anymore. And very quickly we found out that that wasn't going to work because he was still spiralling out of control and we tried supervision orders, we tried so many orders, and in the end we just had to accept that um, it was unsafe for him and I withdrew my written consent and they haven't had any contact with him since. And it's it's been so hard because... Um, at every situation, it was constantly thrown on me that it was his rights and he deserves to have them and all of those things. And like at the end of the day, the system definitely, in my opinion, really lets women down, especially women that are so vulnerable and uneducated like I was. Um, I had no legal background or knowledge. I didn't know right like what the law was and I was just manipulated into letting him have access to his children and believing that, you know, the things that he would tell me that I would be in trouble if I didn't. And my children unfortunately got put in quite a lot of danger to the point where, you know, an incident happened and then we absolutely had to withdraw. Um and he's now in prison because of that. So, yeah, it's it's such a huge thing when you don't know anything about it and there's not a lot of resources and there's not a lot of it, – it costs money to get advice. And as a single mum that's trying to provide for three kids and keep a roof over their heads and pay a mortgage, I didn't have the money for that advice. But I was very lucky that my parents helped me. Um, get some legal help and move forward with the process. And yeah, now we don't have to have contact with him. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's so overwhelming. It is such an overwhelming thing for anyone to look down the barrel of understanding all of the rights. And I think, you know, a common thread in conversation I've had with women is that there's so much fear for women that we're going to keep doing the wrong thing because there are so many systems in place that tell us what we should do, how we should do it. And a lot of it does go against our instinct to protect our children. It's really confusing. It really is. And there's a big um, discrepancy between um, protection orders and family custody orders. And so in the very beginning, before our family, before we had any family court orders, or I even knew about them, um, my youngest child, who was only 18 months to two years at that time, he was continuously being taken by his dad and removed and I would enlist the help of the police and because there was no family custody order in place they couldn't retrieve him for me so I continuously had to put myself in danger and retrieve him myself um so I learned very very quickly that the little piece of paper that I'd been given that said protection order that I thought was going to protect protect us absolutely meant nothing if there's no family court orders put in place so I withdrew all of my consent for him to have them and you know obviously we move forward with the legal process during that time when you had moments of overwhelm and moments of despair what was it that kept you pushing forward my kids (laughs) my kids I just knew that I knew that we were destined for more than this life I knew that we could do better. I knew that we, our dream life would be, you know, would come to us. So, um, you know, I struggled for a small amount of time and then I realized that, hey, it's time to get my shit together. I have to keep moving forward for these kids. I have to, like, you know, I have to work hard and I have to, model the very best parenting that I can and the healing process began then. Yeah. It's kind of like, what is the other choice, right? Yeah. And the other choice is to allow it to consume you and to take over your life and to take, 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 take from you. And it's no wonder that people end up kind of slipping into that pattern because they're so defeated and so broken. And so it's incredible that you are able to really take that pain and that trauma and, you know, allow it to propel you forward. What would be some of your uh, words of wisdom for women who are in a similar situation when they're propelling themselves forward? Are there resources? Are there systems you employed? Like I'm imagining asking people for help was a big one. Yeah, that was really hard for me because I'm such an independent person. So I'd never accepted help before in my life. But just talking about my situation and being really open and honest with my work, with my family, with my friends, people just, you know, helped 
without even asking. I had people cooking meals for me for months on end. Um, I, you know, I was able to take some domestic violence leave from work, um, which was paid, which was a resource that I didn't know was available. Um, I definitely used the resources like the helplines and all of those things. Um, but I found that I was kind of okay without that. And the support that I had from my family and my friends and everything were more than enough to move forward. I think for me personally, moving forward, I really started to work on myself. And that was the turning point or the pivot of going from, um, you know, DV, like family to independent, strong woman who can do this no matter what. So I really changed my lifestyle and I spent every single night with a pen and paper and journaling and writing down who I wanted to be and how I could be that person. And then I wrote down who I wanted to meet and all of the characteristics that I wanted in that person and the life that I wanted to live and slowly made little tiny daily habits like drinking two litres of water exercising daily like they're simple simple things but those little daily habits over weeks months and years is what has built this life that we have now yeah and you say that they're simple daily things and they are but they're also the things that allow you to build a sense of self-efficacy it's like you know what if I can actually stick to my word of saying I'm going to do these little things these little habits oh maybe I can stick to my word in other ways, maybe, you know, and you just get stronger and stronger, I imagine then. Yeah, absolutely. I remember in the very beginning, I went to the gym every day and um, every day that was my one hour of working out. And as my body was getting stronger, my mind was getting stronger. And I walked out every day just like actually saying, oh my God, I feel stronger today. And it was so good because that was like an hour where it was just for me because the rest of my life was working and juggling three kids and trying to get them here, there and everywhere. And that was my one hour to work on me and build that mental strength as well as physical strength as well. And for somebody that had been through what I'd been through, that was just such a huge thing. The the physical exercise and and weightlifting, it just made me feel super powerful. Yeah, it's funny you say that because just recently I was reading an article about the connection of, you know, and I wasn't wasn't planning on having a conversation with you about working out, but <laughs> it was this article, right, Amy, and it was saying that the fact that when you start developing like an exercise regime, what that gives you in your real life, you know, it's like pushing through the repetitions in the gym allows you to push through the repetitions in other areas of life. So whether that's the admin, whether that's the core process, like it's, you know, they all kind of um, speak to one another in terms of your ability to push through challenging things. Yeah, it creates discipline, like discipline. That was just something, it was a non-negotiable, like no matter how hard the day was, I just had to do it. You mentioned as well that you would journal, you would talk to yourself about the sort of person you wanted to be. You got a very clear picture on who you wanted to be and also you created a clear picture on who you wanted to bring into your life. Can you talk a little bit about finding love during your rebuilding time? Yeah, um, Oh, you guys, you should see the biggest smile on her face right now. <laughs> um, so I met my now fiancé on Tinder, 
of all places. Thanks, Queen. <laughs> um, he was my first, last, and only Tinder date. Um, One and done. Yeah, there was definitely some doozies in between with dating and it just wasn't, yeah, it was a funny time. Um, But when I really sat down and got clear on the person that I wanted to call into my life, um, I literally made a list of the things that he had to have and like tattoos and abs were one of them. (laughs) Um, Also on there were so many other things like a good cook and, you know, a great role model, all of those things. Um, to be honest, we like it, the first year of my, me, me and my fiance being together, it was, it was really hard, really, really hard. Finding love was amazing and finding this beautiful person that came into my life and absolutely loved my children like his own was so good. Um, I definitely have to thank him for helping me with so many things in my life, especially with the whole circle of manipulation post-separation. He really stepped in and called me out on that straight away and helped me um, really recognise some things and behaviours that weren't okay. So in terms of like when you say that cycle of manipulation, I really, really like that phraseology. Do you mean he was able to notice your part in that? Like yes. not not to say that you're manipulative, but yeah. I know even with my own separation, like we all play a part in how someone continues to treat us. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. He was able to recognize that I was allowing certain situations to occur um, and he put his foot down and said, I'm not okay with this. If I'm going to be in your life, I'm not okay with this person doing X, Y, Z. So, you know, we need to set some boundaries in place. And that really pulled me out of the little hamster wheel of that manipulation with the kids um, and the rights and all of those things because it's very, very messy there. When you meet somebody and you move on with your life, you still have your property settlement and your divorce and all of those things for me were still ongoing because it takes a lot of time to sort that stuff out. So he came into this really chaotic air, like time in our life um, and it was really, really hard for the first year, like really hard to navigate a new relationship. This man... Um, helping like so much healing and trauma and all of these things with children. It was, it was such a blur. Um, but thankfully we, we got through it and, you know, today we have a really beautiful life and I think that, you know, I'm in the most fulfilling and happiest and healthiest relationship probably because of the stuff that we've been through, because we both sort of stepped up and decided that we were going to not let this, you know, break us. We were going to make better choices and be better people and help each other get through it. So it's a really beautiful thing out of such a toxic situation. Yeah. I'm sitting here nodding along because even if things are perfect, trying to blend with kids is fucking hard let alone all of these other elements that you're going through. Yes, the logistical stuff like the court and the settlement, and it takes years. You know, it usually takes years to sort all that stuff out. And then when you're also dealing with a master manipulator, someone who's so committed to keeping you down or trying to push you down, it just adds so much, so much stress 
to that first year. So I think it's important to talk about that because yes, you can meet someone. Yes, you can have your hit list of perfect qualities and what you want in a person and call that person in. But that doesn't mean that all of the other stuff goes away. And it doesn't mean that that other stuff uh, doesn't penetrate your relationship sometimes because it does. Yeah, absolutely. You don't just meet your person and it's happily ever after. I wish it was that easy. Our relationship takes so much work. I've never worked this hard in my entire life on a relationship. And same with my fiance. Absolutely. He works so hard on our relationship and it's a priority for us because when you find that you're in your thirties and you start your life again and you, and you find somebody and you choose to build a life with them, like, I don't ever want it to turn out the way that it did. I don't, um, I put so much work in because I want this relationship to be the only relationship. I don't want men coming in and out of my children's lives. Um, they have the most incredible bond with him and he is basically their dad. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's worth all of the work. And you now also have. Yes, another baby. We do. So uh, we had a son together. He is one year old and he is the absolute biggest blessing. Um, It was completely unexpected and reflecting on it all, it was absolutely like the universe doesn't give you what you want. It gives you what you need. And he was a very big turning point in that first year, at the very end of our first year of our relationship of of deciding that we're going to move forward with our family life. We absolutely must be in like the most healthiest environment and relationship for our children. If we're going to bring another person into this, like we must, you know, have our relationship in check and we really make it such a priority to have those uncomfortable conversations and the blending of families is ongoing. I remember a podcast from you about blending families and I listened to it at two years into our relationship and I was like, tick, 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 we're killing it. Um, But I remember it saying five years. It takes about five years to blend a family and I was like, no, we're killing this. We're at two. Um, but things happen and things change and we're here now at three years and blending is still definitely a challenge. Definitely. I know the episode you're referring to with Monique Harding and we spoke about, yeah, five years to blend a family and similar to you, I've had moments where I'm like, we are cruising through this. We are nailing it. And then something else will come up and you're like, oh my gosh, it's never ending. You know, you get triggered, different things come up and you have to face them. But I think what's incredibly inspiring with your story, Amy, is that you've taken that experience and rather than allowing that experience to be the standard for what you go into for another relationship or what gets, I guess, perpetuated for your children as well in terms of their normal, right? Because we now know that what we display in our relationship, our children grow up as seeing as normal. So you know, if you continued in that cycle, it's very likely your children will go out and find that to be their comfort level as well. So you've really, really changed and raised the bar, changed the bar. Your bar now is we want a great life. What does that mean? It means uncomfortable conversations. It means commitment. It means knowing that there are challenges and pushing forward and knowing your self-worth as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Even the way that we communicate, you know, within that first year, there would be moments where we would raise our voice um, and we sat down and we made ourselves aware of these and we were like, this is not the way that we're going to do this. And I can honestly say now that, you know, obviously our relationship is not perfect, but whenever we have an issue, it's a discussion. It's never an argument. And it's sometimes it's in front of the children because they see the discussion and then they see the resolution and then they see the, you know, the love and the embrace and the hug, like everything is different now. And it's just, it's so good to be able to talk about something that's really important um, that we're both very passionate about and maybe we disagree on it, but coming to that resolution and being okay with the resolution and modeling that behavior for our kids so that, they don't see, you know, what they used to see of one person going this way and one person going that way and, you know, chaos. I'm sitting here just like in tears, not for the (laughs) first time during our conversation. I've had tears running down my face. You're giving me goosebumps because for your children to go from having to walk the streets with mum to feel safe or to be locked into a room to being able to witness healthy communication and healthy resolution Mm-hmm. you're amazing it's everything hey it's so good. yeah well it's, done. I can you know we can achieve all of the achievements in life but at the end of the day all that matters is that our children are happy and that they're safe and that they're healthy and that kind of that's all that's important to me now and the fact that we nail it most most days um, makes me really really happy I know that there will be so many women in particular listening who have taken a real sense of hope from your story. And I think hope is one of the most underrated things we can cultivate for ourselves. And I love that you spoke about writing to yourself and giving yourself that version of who you wanted to be, who you wanted to be and who you also wanted to be with. Cultivating hope is such an incredible skill to lean into. Is there anything else that you would recommend for our listeners in terms of cultivating hope? Um, I still, like, I still do all of those practices today. Even though we're in such a good and happy place in our life, I still write in my journal every, almost every single day. I still write down the life that I want. It's just, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger now because um, we're starting to achieve these huge goals that I never could even envision would have been possible. So I would honestly just say to your listeners to pen to paper every day, like just put some time into, you know, manifesting the life that you want. Um, As woohoo as it sounds, if you put it down and you believe in it and you work towards it, one foot in front of the other, it's it happens it 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 comes it eventuates you've just you've just got to make small progress every single day and before you know it you're five years post-separation and you can't even recognize the person that you used to be anymore little by little little by little step by step and if we have anyone listening right now amy who is in a similar situation to you were you know, all those years ago, 
they're with an abusive partner, they're in a coercive control situation. I know that you're not a professional, you're not a legal advisor, neither am I. And keeping in mind that when a woman does decide to leave, that can often be the most dangerous time. Would there be any advice that you would have given your previous self or things that you wish you knew around that time? I think um, for anyone that might be in that situation, I think one of the biggest things to do is to speak, like to not hide it, um, not be ashamed of the situation that you're in. Find somebody safe to talk to and, you know, don't be afraid to call the police and to put those measures in place to protect you. Um, It's such a tricky, tricky place to be in and it's so hard to step off the wheel. But at some point, just really check in with yourself and ask yourself if this is truly the life that you deserve and don't accept it if if it's not. Um, find somewhere safe and and get out and don't go back in. Get off the wheel. Yeah. Because no matter what your circumstance is, there's there's help out there. You just might not know it yet. And people are amazing and communities will step behind you and you'll get help from people that you didn't expect and you'll make it through no matter what. And I know that, you know, it's easy to say that with people with very dangerous situations, but remove yourself from the dangerous situation and don't put yourself back in it. Yeah, it's a hard one. I'll make sure we have some resources in our show notes. I have no doubt that your conversation, your you know, sharing your experience today will impact our listeners. So thank you for being vulnerable and sitting down and having this chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's nice to hopefully use our story to help others because, um, you know, five years ago, if you had told me I'd be in a position with four children and happily engaged and doing all of these great things with our life, I would absolutely have not believed you. And this is our life and it's so beautiful. So it's worth all of it, all of the work. You're amazing. (laughs) One very strong woman and those babies are lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 